obviously thrilled uh, to have our, our dear friend guest, Jim LaFin. How many of you guys have been to a service with Jim before? Yeah, most of you have, a handful of you, of you haven't. Very good. Yeah, Jim Hales uh, from, I think he's a Cary you live in? Cary? Yeah, in Chapel Hill area, uh, the Triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, that area, uh, from North Carolina, travel the world, and pastor churches across the nation, and serves as the teaching pastor there locally in Kings Park Church. They have a significant presence on the campus there, and touch a lot of influential people's lives. The Triangle area is an amazing medical research place and all that. Uh, Jim also functions in the Every Nation world as a senior prophetic voice. I'll let him talk about what... Um, what New Testament prophecy here is in a moment when he comes up to pray for folks. But uh, Jim has been, obviously been a longtime friend of this church, a dear friend to a number of our leaders here, and especially Carrie and me. He's sort of one part Bible teacher, one part counselor, an amazing counselor. I believe he's in the process of writing a book about God's touching the healing, uh, the healing power of God's touching the soul and what that looks like for the human soul to be healed and touched and, and, and changed. And of course, then he's one part uh, prophetic voice as well. And so, very honored to have you, Pastor Jim. He's going to come here in a moment and teach for a while, share what's on his heart. I just sort of ask him on these sort of Saturday night moments just to give him some free reign to speak whatever he like about what he sees either in our church and our nation or in a culture. He's got a keen eye for our culture and where it's headed. Studies that quite a bit, and um, so he's got a lot to say. Very glad to have you. Can we guys? Can you guys just give a incredibly warm welcome? Jim's here. Thank you for being here with us. Gonna be okay for you. How are we doing tonight? Good. I'm the next to Will tonight. My my football team were nine and one this year. Now for UNC football, that's like a sign of the Lord's return. Just to be honest, I'm getting real worried. I tell you, I'm. I mean, my football team being 9-1 for the first time in decades is a bigger sign than if the moons get red. I'm just telling you right now. That's serious. That's like a great heavenly sign or something. Um, now, my basketball team won, but we win all the time. I'm basketball. We're pretty used to winning. I don't want to talk about UT football tonight. I know it's maybe not been your best season for that, but is it better than last year? I don't know. You know the world is crazy. You know the world is crazy when, like, Baylor's great in football and UT's not. I never could have predicted that. That's one of those, like, I don't know. That's kind of like a, I can't, like an eclipse or something. But anyway, okay. I want, let's, let's look in the word a bit. And I'm, I'm not going to speak long. And then we'll spend some time prophesying over people. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just thank you uh, for being here. It's such a pleasure to be here with God, Morgan, Carrie, John, Aaron Day. It just goes on and on. I, I just thank you for privilege of friendships in this church and what you're doing here. Amen. I'm basically going to do a little two-part series um, out of the life of Elijah. I'm going to talk about the country, something prophetic out of his life for the country, then more particularly about your church and what I see happening tomorrow morning. I just want you to understand that nothing takes God by surprise. Um, and I know we, we live in an hour where there's a lot of things to be perplexed about, whether it's everything down around the choke places like the Straits of Malacca and all down there in those little islands people are fighting over, and, or whether it's or not fighting, arguing over, or whether it's you know, kind of Russia flexing her muscle, reaching out in Europe, or just the, the terror of what we see in Paris and 
just the mass spillover of immigration into Europe and all this happening. How many of you know it's just a good time to be a Christian? And I want you to understand that, that none of this takes God by surprise. And that behind all these terrifying headlines, I can tell you miraculous, amazing things are happening. Um, there's never been, as I share a couple things, a greater harvest among Muslims in all the history of the world. And I'm an eyewitness to it. I go to the Middle East. I could regale you with stories all night of Muslims turning to Christ. Recently, there was a, a young a year, Syrian teenager was seriously diagnosed with leukemia and uh, cancer. He was supernaturally healed, confirmed by doctors. And that has been the shot heard around the world. It's gone into Amman. It's gone back down into Syria. This is a pretty family, a lot of people in it. And I, I, can't, I, do not, I can't count the small groups they've started now. And so everywhere I look, God is moving. Let me just talk to you about Europe, a little, couple things God told me to give you some perspective. And then I want to talk about the United States, where I see us now. I'm going to speak out of a passage, and you'll understand why I'm in the life of Elijah, where I think we're going. And why, despite the fact that our country seems in moral free fall right now, that I'm optimistic that God's on the move and God's going to help us. In 2012, on January 1st, I was praying, and the Holy Spirit began to speak very softly to me about Europe. And so I was having my normal devotions, and I stopped what I was doing. And the next thing I know, in a vision, and we can talk like this, it's kind of a prophetic service, and um, I saw a huge bear rise up over Europe, and God said the Russian bear, basically, is coming back awake, and he's going to try to regain his place in Europe. And he was swiping this big paw over Europe, threatening it, trying to take countries back and influence back. The Lord said, but you're not to be afraid. He says, come, I'm going to break the left arm of the bear. But as America pivots to Asia, I'm going to raise up Germany as a counterbalance to Russia, and you watch what I'm going to do in the world. Of course, we, we're watching that reality now, where Russia is trying to regain her influence, and who would have thought that Germany under, under Merkel would be, you know, Merkel, pardon me, would just be this counterbalance. And the next year, the Lord told me, he said, through an through a, a influx of immigrants, this is 2013, of, of Islamic immigration, Morgan probably heard me say this, that I'm going to reawaken Europe, Europeans to their Christian history. That so many Muslims are going to begin to flood into their country that there's going to be an awakening. So I, I've, I've gone to Germany every year since then, and it's amazing what God is doing. My last time there, Kathy and I was in September, and right before I got there, the Chancellor of Germany stood up at a big national newscast. They asked her, what do you think about Muslims coming? She said, Muslims are welcome here. They're welcome to practice their faith. But the real issue is not what Muslims know about the Quran. It's what Germans know about the Bible. And she said, it's time for Germans to return to the Bible. Now, I, I could pull the speech out. I, I have it translated. It's time, she said, for us to rediscover our heritage, to understand what stained glass windows mean. She goes, I am, I'm saddened that we don't even know what Pentecost is. Let me tell you. It, 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 that's an extraordinary thing to happen in Germany. And you mark my word. God is reawakening Europe. He's reawakening that nation. You know, the, what's happening now in the Chinese economy is slowing down and all those implications. And trust me, it's only the tip of the iceberg we see. In 2010, the Lord spoke that to me and showed me these different dates and years and new economy. So nothing takes God by surprise. 
And he is going to use that too. And he is continuing. We work deeply in China. What God is doing in China now in urban areas, now among brilliant leaders, China will soon have more Christians than any other nation in the world. But God's is just phenomenal. Now, I'm going to basically entitle this little message tonight, The Broom Tree or the Mountain, Where Are You Running To? And I, we're going to basically stay, other than the introduction, in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 19. So let me start by setting a period of time for you. In 1 Kings 16, 29 through 17, 1, it says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asheroth pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord God of Israel than all the kings before him. That's not a real good epithet, is it? Now, so... Also, Ahab made an Asherah pulled in more to arouse anger. Um, Hile of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid the foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. Um, Israel was in a time of horrific declension. We know by the time we get to 1 Kings 19, roughly three and a half years after this passage, we we know that there are only 7,000 adults in Israel that hadn't bowed to Baal. It was mass declension. It was not only a time of immorality, it was a time of when immorality become an act of worship, and you would go to the temple and get your male or female prostitute, and the child of that union you could burn alive in fire to one of the gods. It was a time of incredible darkness. It was also a time when the historic relationship between Israel and the church, the prophets, the the people of Yahweh had changed. There was a day when their relationship had been defined by cooperation, building a nation together. And then there were periods when it had, they'd been the conscience of the nation. And even when a king would sin, the prophet or the priest would speak and they'd respond. We're coming into a period of time here where there's no longer cooperation. They're no longer accepted as a conscience. Now it is a time of confrontation. Um, and we find ourselves in our, in our own country where once the church had a real place in shaping and molding the nation, that is no longer the case. And we find ourselves in an interesting period of time. And in the middle of all this, God speaks to Elijah. There's going to be a drought. Now, this was an agricultural nation. And God basically said, until you speak, this economy's dead. And they're going into a three and a half year drought. There's economic problems. And, and we come now into the passage. Now, when we look at the place where he was, let me set the stage. For three and a half years, God had said, go show yourself to Ahab. Ahab had been searching for him everywhere. He was the most wanted man in the nation. And they get up to Mount Carmel and God flat just shows off his power. Everything that Elijah could have dreamed happened. Thousands of Israelites came. And Elijah basically said, today you're going to decide, are you going to serve God or serve Baal as a nation? The test was a simple one. Whoever could call down fire, his God was real. 
Hundreds of priests of Baal cut themselves screen, trying to fall into trances, prayed. Nothing happened. Elijah wasn't the most pastoral person in the world. He kind of mocked him. Is your, God in the, is your God gone to the bathroom? Is he taking a break? Where could he be? When you look at the Hebrew interchange. And so finally, Elijah's turn. He says, pour water all over my sacrifices. Now, why did he do that? One, he wanted to demonstrate that even wet wood God could burn, but even deeper, he realized when fire falls, rain is next. And water was like gold in those days. He looks up. He said, where are you? Are you God? Wham, fire burns. Prophets of Baal slaughtered. He begins to pray, drought broken, and he thinks to himself, as thousands of Israelites yell, Yahweh's God, Yahweh's God. Man, we're in just real revival. I mean, the nation is revived. He goes home. In fact, he's under such a great anointing, he prays. Ahab takes off in his chariot. He outruns Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel. He thinks, man, revival's come, nation saved. A few hours later, there's a knock at the door. And there's a messenger from Jezebel. She said this, you tell Elijah, this is what I'm saying. May God's deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. You're dead in 24 hours. Depleted from all his exertions, something snapped in him and he gave way to fear. You see, the worst thing that can happen to you is when you realize I have operated at my optimum level of faith and in reality, nothing really changed. You get in a situation where I've parented my best, I've been the best spouse I can be, the best leader I can be, the best teacher I can be, the best coach I can be, the best professional I can be, but nothing's changed. And when you really talk to serious-minded Americans and leaders right now, there's a lot of consternation. Like, what's it going to take? We've prayed, we've fasted. I mean, the last century was called the century of revival. Most of the major revivals that swept through the earth started in the greater Los Angeles area. Man, people have lived through the Pentecostal revival. They've lived through the charismatic renewal, the latter rain, the third wave, the Jesus. What's it going to take? And there's this sense of despair in many right now that love the country. What's it going to take? We seem to be in free fall. We have these big meetings. We fast. We pray. But we wake up to a world in free fall. Now, when this hit, Elijah, already depleted from all of his exertions, something snapped in him. And the Bible says he ran for his life. Now, the good news was, even though he'd given into fear, even though he panicked, he ran in the right direction. It says, when he came to Beersheba, which means well of the seven covenants, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Here's what he realized. I got to find God fresh. He gets to Beersheba. He tells his servant, you stay I've got to be alone with God. Did all the right things. I'm going to get a break. I'm going to get away from my employees. I'm going to get away from my company. I'm going to get me a little Sabbath. I've got to find God. I've got to figure this out. And it's, the Bible says he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came to a broom bush. Now you're thinking a broom bush. Well, a broom bush was the most fragrant, beautiful plant in the desert. Golden leaves, fragrant, basically grew around water. 
in an oasis. He went to the most beautiful spot he could find. He got his green space, favorite hotel. I'm just ad-libbing there. I'm going to get away. I'm going to rest. If I could just get a nap, I'll be okay. If I could just get a vacation, if I could just get away from all this stress. He's, and that's a smart thing. I'm going to change my external circumstances, get a rest, get away from work. If I can just stop, I'll be okay. But what he did not realize is there was a, a spiritual climatic change around him. And the normal ways of handling his stress weren't going to work. The normal ways of responding to the fatigue and the exhaustion he felt. And look what happened. How many of you ever thought if I could just get on vacation, I'd be better. And you get on vacation and you find out how bad you really feel. Raise your hand. He finally sits down, gets ready to go to sleep. And here's what he says. I had enough. Kill me. Why? Because he stopped medicating through busyness and the real state of his soul came to surface. I'm no better than my answer. What does that mean? I'm no better than all the prophets that have come before me. I'm no better than all the other people in my profession. I'm no better than all the other righteous people. Kill me. Come to the end of it. And what he was beginning to discover, I'm going to go a little deeper, is the normal ways of handling stress in that climate don't work. It wasn't just emotional. It wasn't just physiological wasn't just mental. It was spiritual. He was facing headwinds from hell. Now watch this. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now thank God. God looked down and realized, my man is in trouble. I better help him. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water, he ate and drank, then lay down again. God thought, man, I mean, this man can't, he ain't going to take out. I got to have a home delivery. So he sends down an angelic chef, and behind him, and it's still the, one of the favorite things that Arabs eat today, he cooks on a hot stone his bread. Now, personally, if I'm really down and the Lord's going to send down a meal for me, I don't want bread and water. I want papacitos, I want fajitas, maybe that meat sizzling on a hot rock, maybe Rudy's barbecue. Anyway, that's a definite story. I'll talk to the Lord about that in heaven. So he comes down, and he makes him this meal. Now catch this, it's so important. Now we know in the Bible, a bread's a picture of him. Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. Water is the picture of the Spirit of God. So there's some, obviously some symbolism here. But here's the thing, it's that the angel touched him. And said, get up and eat. This is important. There comes a place in your life where getting touched is not going to be enough. The touch you get in church is not going to be enough. Maybe you'll get a prophecy tonight. That's not going to be enough. That touch only gave him the strength to do what would really strengthen him, which was eat. And a lot of believers in America, they get used to living on the touch. Oh, that was a great message. That was a great word. I got a little touch in worship. I got a little touch in small group. Oh, man, that was just a good message. I got a little touch. It's not enough. And the touch you get in church is to give you the strength and go home and eat for the rest of the week. Because if you're living on a touch, it's not going to be enough. Now, here's what's stunning. An angel touched him. He ate a heavenly meal, 
and all he could do was sleep better. We come to a place in our life when not only do the normal things that deal with our stress not work, our normal diet in the Word is not enough. Now, God looks down, and he realizes, okay, my man's in trouble. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by that food he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Angel comes back, prepares the same meal, touches him. says, get up and eat. He could have thought, man, I've been reading my Bible all week. Didn't work any better. I'm done. I don't feel any better, pastor. Why should I worship? You see, you come to a place where you're on the brink of exhaustion where you get paralyzed. But the problem comes many times not in the quality of the word, it's the quantity of the word. Here's what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Desperate times demand a different diet. I hit a place this summer just of like massive stress, massive exhaustion, crisis, busy. God said, double up or you won't survive. Double up in my presence, double up in worship, double up in the word. Why? The Lord said, the journey is too much for you. I'm here to tell you, everywhere I go in the body of Christ, we've hit a wind where the normal things we do to recover our strength don't work the way they used to. We go on vacation, we come back tired. We try to get away, it doesn't work. Our normal little bit of prayer, and whether it's five minutes a day or 15 minutes a day and maybe a minute a day, it's just not enough. And it's because what we're facing is not just physiological. What we're facing is not just emotional right now. What we're facing is not just mental right now. There is a demonic headwind. There's, there's pressure on our nation. That we're, we're facing things that, that are even intangible. And the journey's been too much for a lot of people. In their home, in their life. There's a weariness. There's a tiredness. You say, Pastor Jim, I'm not normally this tired. And things like that don't normally bother me, bother me now. It's because you're facing things that are beyond what you've known and understand. It's because the climate in the nation's just changed. It's harder right now. There's tension, there's pain, there's distress in our world. Here's the interesting thing. When he got up and responded to God and ate that second meal, what happened? When he ate the second heavenly meal, his strength was supernaturally charged, enabling him to travel through the wilderness for 40 days. Now, it was only an eight-day walk to where he was going, which was Mount Horeb. Only eight days. What God do with him the other 32 beats me. But I can tell you, one meal doesn't typically propel you 40 days through the wilderness. If you will step deeper into God's word, if you'll step deeper, deeper into God's presence, he is going to ignite a new level of supernatural strength in you. Now watch this. The Lord spoke to me on Labor Day weekend of 2013. And he spoke to me. I was at a conference. He spoke to me. He said, son, I want you to know the church in America is getting ready to go into the wilderness. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're going to be slowly pushed 
into a cultural, social, and political wilderness. You're going to feel like you're losing your say and losing your voice and losing your power and losing your freedoms. But you're not to be afraid when that happens because I've done really well in the wilderness. You know, do I, do I fear the church in America being persecuted? No, I don't. I don't worry about the things certain people are saying. But I do realize, as a church, we don't have the same cultural and political and social influence we used to have. Um, our voice is being lost. Part of that is the church's fault. They were pretty ugly and had some bad strategy at one point. But not all of it is. And that can be frustrating to us. We feel like we don't even have a say in our country. You know something? Here's the fact of it. You know what you get in the wilderness? The cloud, manna, power, God's leadership, purification. Hey, don't be afraid of this. Because God is leading us somewhere. Now watch what happens. Where was he going? Where's God bringing the church? What's he really after? I'm going to summarize this in a minute because I'll start where I stop tomorrow morning and go deeper and talk about this church and what it means. Where's God taking us? Said so he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Now, it was only an eight-day journey. 30, the other 32 days, God was dealing with him. Doesn't even say why. You know, thank God, even, in the, even if you make the Bible, God keeps a few things about your life secret. I mean, you ever, th- you ever think, I want to be in the Bible? I don't. How many of you get in the Bible, God tells the truth about you. He's an idiot, he didn't listen, he cussed, he denied. You get in the Bible, all your sins are there for everyone to see. They were jealous, they argued, they abandoned me, they betrayed me. I mean, he said, I know your thoughts. I mean, I don't want to be in the Bible. It's bad enough being a pastor. Anyway, okay, now. So he goes to Mount Horeb, which was the very mountain where Moses met God. Now, this is interesting. Then he went into a cave, but in the Hebrew, and you look in your better commentators, he went into the cave. And it's thought that the prophets and kind of the mystical, godly, God fears of those days, they knew the spot where Moses had been. You see, hundreds of years before, Moses had come to a place where the nation was falling into idolatry, immorality, even though God had destroyed Egypt, even though they'd seen the cloud and the man, and Moses is out of ideas. He said, God, if I'm going to lead these people, I need more of you. I need your glory, God says. No one can survive my glory and live. But you see that hole, that crack down there? I'm going to put you in the crack. I'm going to put my hand over you. My glory is going to pass over you. When it does, I'm going to pop my hand up. A little bit of that glory is going to filter down on you. You're going to be forever changed, and they'll know it. And Elijah somehow realizes, if I don't get more of God, I'm done. If I don't get something fresh from God, I'm not going to be able to influence this country. It's so easy to get caught up with the problems around us. We forget about the problems in us. The average Christian spends most of their time worrying about things out of their control and very little time worrying about what is in their control, their own heart, their own attitudes, their own life. So he gets up there. God said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've been zealous for you. Then wicked Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altar, put your old prophets to death, killed up the pastors. I'm the only one left. A little bad perspective. Now they're trying to kill me. God, God realized that a conversation wouldn't help him. 
there is a time when you've got to get up in the presence of God to get perspective. So God said, okay, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for I'm going to pass you by. Now, Elijah realized God's getting ready to manifest. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. I mean, all the phenomena, that's just kind of like the trailer, honestly. Big wind, like a laser carving the mountain, earthquake, fire. And then it said this. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. Why, he knew he was going to be able to look at that glory. And went and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been zealous. They've rejected your covenant. Um, they've torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. But he was more tentative now. He was in that presence. And here's what God said to him. Watch this. The Lord said to him, I want you to go back the way you came. Now, I want you to listen to what he said Because in reality, it is the hope of our nation as well. He said, I want you to go back. And I want you to stop worrying about just being anointed yourself. And I want you to transfer your anointing to three segments of society and three men. And if you'll transfer this anointing, watch what I do. He said, I want you to find Haziel, a young political leader in Aram, who's serving your worst enemy. He's going to get a prophecy. Now, someone else would do that, one of the people he trained. Then I want you to go to young Jehu. He's an army colonel. And you're going to anoint him as king. Then I want you to go down to a young entrepreneur named Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel Maloa, and he's going to become the new prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And by the way, there's 7,000 more just like you. Now, what's he saying? Elijah, you're going to go back because you just learned a lesson. You're the most anointed man on the planet, and it wasn't enough. And if you don't pass your anointing through mentoring and discipleship and prophecy... This thing is not going to change. He went home, went down to this young entrepreneur who had a massive agricultural business with, I think it was 10 yoke of oxen and all kinds of employees. Didn't go to the seminaries, it's mind-boggling. Didn't go to the three schools of the prophets with the guys he'd been training. Found a young entrepreneur, threw his mantle on him, and that kid disappeared for years following him around in mountains. And through Elisha and the other guys, the young colonel became king. The young political leader became king. Elijah became prophet. And Israel was spared for well over another century. That political line was decimated. A new political line was birthed. And God spared that nation for decades. What will it take to change America? You. It's just the fact of it, beloved. We, we always have, well, the Lord's going to return. Well, that'll be wonderful for you and for me. And it'll be wonderful for the rest of humanity. Or a big revival. 
That'd be good too, and I hope we get one, but they come and go. They're intermittent, and you can't predict them. What will it take? It'll take you and I touching our sector and segment of society with God's love, God's power, and God's grace. And that's where we are. I've never been more optimistic over the church in America. More, this is our moment. I know it's dark, but God always creates his greatest masterpieces on a canopy of darkness. It's what he always does. And many of you tonight, there's a pretty heavy head, headwind on you. It's been hard to keep going. You've tried to shake it. You've tried to make your way through it. But you feel like, man, I'm no better than my ancestors. Tried to read your Bible, tried to get a break. But still, progress has been so hard. It's affected your emotions. It's affected you intellectually. But I'll tell you, the same God that prepared a heavenly meal for Elijah has prepared the meal of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word for you. And as you feast on that, as you feed on that, trust me, he is going to ignite his spirit in you. There's been a lot of spiritual warfare. We always laugh and say we shouldn't spiritualize things. If we're really honest, we don't spiritualize enough. Most of us get clobbered by the enemy and don't even acknowledge it. There is a very real devil. And he really does target the saints and oppress them and torment them and lie to them and hurt them. It's not a joke. It's not a myth. That he likes it best when we don't acknowledge he's around. A lot of you are weary. The normal things you've done to break that cycle haven't worked. They're good things, but the hours changed. The moments changed. We're coming into some very, very important months in the life of our country. Just very important. People, there's always the doomsayers. God's given up on America. No, he's not. He despaired Sodom for a dozen people. There's millions of God-fearing people here. This is to be our finest hour. But if we're going to march these 40 days, we're going to need a fresh diet. Diet of God's presence. Diet of God's word. Diet. Now, if you're here tonight, you say, Pastor Jim, I've definitely had a weariness on me that hasn't made sense. It's just been a bit harder harder than normal. If that's you and you need a fresh touch from God, just wave your hand at me right now. Put them up. I'm feeling better seeing all those hands up. I feel like more at home. I, both my hands are going up. Now, Holy Spirit, stand up here with me, please, Morgan. Keep your hands up. In fact, if you just have your hand up, stand to your feet. Let's just pray. I'm going to stand up and join you because I feel exactly that way. Father, I'm just coming into agreement with Pastor Morgan right now. I want you to know, says the Lord, that there's just a fresh touch of my spirit coming on this church. And it's going to carry you through the holidays, but it's gonna, there's going to be a fresh wave of growth 
again that hits this church in the new year. My grace is going to come and you're going to see a high proportion of unbelievers coming to this church. It is going to surprise you. And I want you to cooperate with what I'm doing. Invite all the people you've written off in your mind that's never come. I want you to give them a second chance. I want you to give them another moment because I am coming by my spirit to freshly visit you. I want you to know the enemy's blown against you. You've had crazy things on your health, crazy things in your body, worn in work, things that don't make any sense. But as you draw close to my presence, as you draw close to my spirit, I'm just going to flood you with my presence. I'm just going to flood you with my spirit. In fact, I want you, says the Lord, to come into my presence longer, to come into my word, and I'm going to ignite strength in you. I'm going to ignite life in you. And you're coming into a season, says the Lord, of where, if I was describe it, you're coming to a season where you're going to see things with your own eyes, with people being saved and touched, and you're going to look and say, I never thought it could be him. I never thought it could be her. And I want you to, to ask me, even now, who should you invite to this house? Because as you cross over into 2016, I'm going to begin to blow harder to propel you than the enemy is blown to resist you. This is a day to invite people, and you're going to be surprised when you reach out to them and they come. Because I'm moving by my grace. Watch what I do.